This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can come together as believers to honor you and honor your word by studying your word. This is the highest form of worship, for we recognize that you have revealed yourself to us in a way that we can understand. You have made yourself uh, understandable to us and comprehensible to us so that we can learn who you are, who we are as human beings, and how we are to live before you, how we are to think about the issues of life so that we can think in terms of reality as you created it and not in terms of our own fantasies, our own ideas and dreams about uh, how life ought to be in terms of how we wish it was. Father, we pray that uh, pray for our nation today. We pray that the heritage of freedom that has been given to us is a legacy from so many previous generations and so many who have served this nation, so many who have given their life for this, for the freedom of this nation. We pray that that freedom might be preserved. We know that we are going through difficult times, dark times, and that it seems that government now, as it was in 1776, continues to encroach upon our freedom. And there are many who are quite fearful as we look at what is going on, what has been taking place for many years now, as government continues to expand and freedom continues to be threatened by an ever-encroaching government. Father, we pray that there would be men and women, and not only those who serve in the military but serve nationally as leaders, who would understand uh, what the real issues are here and would uh, be uh, raised up in order to protect and preserve the Constitution and protect and preserve our freedoms through uh, legislation that continues to uh, be constitutional rather than that which expands government. Father, as we come together as believers, we recognize that one of the most er- most important areas uh, for us as individual believers and citizens is functioning within the areas of what we call the divine institutions, personal responsibility, marriage, and a family specifically as we continue our study on this topic in Colossians and in Ephesians. And as we continue our study today, our focus on the role and responsibilities of husbands, we pray that you will help us to understand these things and that as men, as husbands, that we will take to heart what the Scriptures teach and that they will have a transformative effect on the way we think about our role in the family and our relationship to our wives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to continue where we stopped last time in about verse 24. 
Before we get into that, I want to give you all a little report on uh, <clears throat> the uh, events of yesterday. Uh, I had been invited, as you know, to uh, speak on the topic of Christianity and Islam, uh, which is the religion of peace, at the um, Center for Terrorism Law at St. Mary's University in San Antonio. Jeff Atticott, who is the founding founder and director of uh, the uh, Center for Terrorism Law, uh, someone I've known for many years. I first met him when he was a uh, JAG officer. That's the Judge Advocate General Corps, his JAG officer in the Army. He was the he was uh, uh, assigned to deal with uh, legal issues related to special forces operations, and he primarily worked at the time I knew him with the Southern Command dealing with things that were going on in Central America and, and South America and a lot of a lot of things that, that if he told me what he did, he'd have to kill me. So he's a, he's a solid believer. He's a great patriot, great Southerner, and uh, uh, he, he is a great Alabaman, and I'm sure he is, uh, he, he is in somewhat of a grieving state today after, um, after Texas A&M defeated uh, Alabama yesterday. Didn't get a chance to talk to him about that yet. <laughs> All the Aggies are very happy today. No, no, no spiritual ecstatics here today. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so yesterday uh, we went out there, and when, when he first asked me to do this, it was near the end of July, and um, there are some things that a pastor does, some things that a pastor teaches that put that pastor in the vortex of the angelic conflict and and one of those topics is spiritual warfare. Many of you have uh, read the book that Tommy and I wrote on spiritual warfare back in uh, 1990. And I hope I never go through anything like that again because of all the things that happened in my life while I was writing that book. Later, I wrote the uh, manuscript for uh, Pastor Themes, Satanism, Satan and Demonism, and that was a pretty stressful uh, time. A couple of you who knew me then remember that. That was a hard time as well. Well, the last four or five months since Jeff asked me to come and speak on this topic have not been the easiest months. I was glad that I had at least a month of calm to prepare for this because starting in about the middle of September with my dad breaking his hip and then one thing after another, I just I was getting so frustrated because I never got time to 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 study to pick up a book to even think about it because it was just one thing after another, and finally I got was able to get back to it about last Monday and I was pulling uh, almost you know all days all nights getting up at four o'clock in the morning I'm a morning person so I don't do well studying after eight o'clock at night but I'll get up at four in the morning and do great. So it was a, a, a week of very, very, very early mornings. And just to give you a, a just a small taste of the kinds of things that uh, that happened uh, on a regular basis. Well, yesterday morning, we I got up at 4.30 to finish the last uh, 30% of my uh, slideshow for the conference. And we were supposed to meet Jeff downstairs and go uh, across the street over to Denny's to have breakfast, which we did. I got all but the last five slides done and ready to go, and I thought, well, I can do that pretty easily. And we, and then my just before we left, I was going to send my no, email my notes to him so he could print them. And the computer just all of a sudden went from light speed to slogging its way through wet cement in snowshoes. 
And I said, okay, I'll just turn it off and reboot it and go eat breakfast. And when I got back from breakfast, I reached in my suit pocket to pull out my glasses, the ones I have on. When I pulled it out, the screw holding the lens in popped. Fortunately, I found it. I've been doing this a long time, folks. I had my little eyeglass screwdriver in my backpack, carry one in my backpack, one in my briefcase, one in the car. <laughs> you got to have triple, quadruple redundancy on everything. You just you just learn that. So I got that, but it just you know when seconds matter, everything takes minutes. That was how it how it was going. So we got that handled. Got in the car, drove to the uh, law school, went in. We had plenty of time to uh, it seemed to get make sure every all the um, AV worked and everything, and we hooked into the uh, LCD projector. But it, it, for some reason, it wasn't connected. We had to reboot and reboot a couple of times. So that always takes time. So times, you know, it starts at about 8.35, 8.40, and it's getting to be 8.35, 8.40. And finally, we got that working to discover that the bulb that they had in their, in their projector was getting old and failing so that it, none of the colors showed up correctly. That means that the yellows were reds, the blues were oranges. The purples were sort of a psychedelic yellow. And um, uh, I couldn't really see the screen behind me, but from what I heard, it was a, it was a PowerPoint slideshow to do justice to the 60s. <laughs> so that's just how it goes when you're uh, living in the vortex of the angelic conflict. But it went well. What was really interesting about this, and one of the reasons why this was so important, is that this, and I didn't realize this until Jeff gave the introduction yesterday, but th- this particular symposium that they had yesterday on the war on terror was funded by a grant to a group of, of uh, history teachers in the San Antonio Independent School District. So it was very well attended. The auditorium held about 120 people, and it was full. I'm glad, I had a number of you who said you were going to come couldn't make it because then it would have been uh, standing room only. Uh, it was uh, there were one or two that made it, but it was a, a, a full house, and 75 percent of them were secular San Antonio school history teachers. They probably never heard the perspective that Jeff and I gave on the war on terror and on law and the importance of a strict constructionism, a strict interpretation of the law, the Constitution, and the Bible. And so (laughs) Bruce was there. Bruce came and videotaped um, the, the presentation. So once we... That's just a clean, straight video. He he will edit uh, <clears throat> the appropriately colored slides, and a few typos have been already edited, Bruce, and he will uh, edit that in so that that will be available probably in the next uh, two or three weeks. But it was um, it was a, a good conference. What dawned on me as we were talking about things and went back and forth, and I listened to some things that Jeff said, and uh, some of the things correlated with what I had already put into, into my presentation, especially related to understanding this, this whole issue of why uh, Islam, as it is written and interpreted in the Quran, as it is written in the Quran, must be interpreted literally when it is. Violence is the logical consequence 
of their belief system, and you can't get away from it. Islam is not a religion of peace. What they mean by being a religion of peace is if you are a Muslim, you are in the house of peace, Dar es Salaam. If you're not a Muslim, you're in the house of war. There is no peace for those who are in the house of war, and as a Muslim, you can lie, deceive, uh, attack, but your role is to either force those in the house of war to submit to Allah or you have to kill them. That's it. That is inherent in the Quran, and that is the, that is the strict constructionist. That, that's legal language for literal interpretation of the law, literal inter- interpretation uh, of the Quran. What dawned on me this morning as I was reflecting on some other things, it suddenly hit me that for the last, I don't know, 10 years at least, close to 20 years, we've been hearing this constant assault against fundamentalists. Christians. Fundamentalist Christians take the word of God literally, and fundamentalists are dangerous. Fundamentalists of any kind are dangerous. If you listen to the news media, fundamentalist Christians are equated to fundamentalist Muslims because they're fundamentalists. It's fundamentalism that's wrong. Well, what's the essence of fundamentalism? Strict constructionism, literal interpretation of the original texts of the religion whether it's the literal interpretation of the Quran, literal interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita, literal interpretation of the Book of Mormon, literal interpretation of the Bible. If you're interpreting your religious text literally according to strict constructionism, you're a fundamentalist, and you are the problem. But what we haven't heard them do yet, but be warned, because it's logically consistent, it's the logical conclusion If you are a legal fundamentalist, if you believe in strict constructionism of the Constitution, literal interpretation of the Constitution, that's legal fundamentalism. And it's not going to be hard to make the leap that you're the enemy if you believe in fundamentalist religion to being the enemy if you believe in fundamentalist law. That's coming. May not be today or tomorrow, but that's the trajectory, and we've been on that trajectory for at least uh, 40, if not 50 years. So just just watch for it. All right, let's get into our our topic and our passage as we continue, and we're about to wrap up our study on the uh, on marriage and family, the role of husbands and wives within a marriage. We're going to wrap up the passage in Ephesians 5 today. Colossians 3, 18 through 21 summarizes the basic biblical mandates for the Christian home, the role of wives, husbands, children, and parents. Wives are to submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Notice each of these commands is related to our relationship to God to the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a correlation there. Husbands are to love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. That's expanded in the passage we're looking at in Ephesians 5. Now, last time I pointed out, read through this whole section, that the basic issue here is husbands loving your wives. Husbands are to love your wives, that basic command, Ephesians 5.25. And then there's an illustration in verses 26 and 27 related to the Lord. Ephesians 5.28 says, So husbands, you ought also to love your wives as their own bodies. And then when we come to the conclusion in verse 33 at the bottom, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife 
as himself. So what is the message? What is the uh, tie, that, uh, the, the, the thread that connects all of these verses? It's this command that husbands are to love your wives as Christ loved the church, which means it's selflessly, it's not on the basis of what you're going to get out of it, but it must be based on a higher ethical uh, value, one of integrity, which means it has to be grounded in uh, the character of God. Husbands are to love their wives, and then there's that, that analogy, just as. So we have to understand how Christ, Christ loved the church. And so last time I spent the, the focal point on understanding that love of God as demonstrated at the cross. If you were here, it was a strong gospel message, maybe a little stronger than I normally would. We have a little saying in my home that you can always tell when a family member that we're not sure is saved is visiting at West Houston Bible Church because I spent a lot of time witnessing, giving the gospel, which was true last week because of the uh, uh, memorial service for my dad and a number of family members uh, that were here uh, visiting and... um, and so I'm not sure of the salvation status of uh, uh, several of them. So that's why we got a good presentation of the gospel last week. But it fits the passage. You have to understand the gospel to understand love. There are two purpose clauses in 5:26 and 27 indicating the purpose of Christ's love for the church, for the purpose of sanctification and ultimate goal of presenting the church uh, to himself as a glorious church at the judgment seat of Christ, totally sanctified from all, from all sin. The other thing we see in terms of just a basic structure is the explanation of 529 and 530, which we'll see in more detail uh, later on uh, this morning. So the key is these three commands to love in verse 25, 28, and 33. Now what I want to do is focus on uh, just <clears throat> uh, briefly, one more point on verse uh, verse 27. The purpose for Christ loving the church, this is foundational for understanding this relationship of Christ and the church because it's that relationship of Christ to the church and the church to Christ. The church is in Christ. It's that relationship that is to be depicted in a Christian marriage. The Christian marriage is a training aid to show the world something about the relationship between Christ and the church. Now, that's that's quite an assignment for those of us who are married. If you're a believer and you're married, part of the mission of your marriage is to depict doctrinal truths about the relationship between Christ and the church. So we saw last time that husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church. He loved for a purpose, that he might sanctify and cleanse the church through salvation. And then, and this is indicated in the word hagiadzo, which means to make holy or to set apart, uh, that is for the service of God and to cleanse uh, the church by the washing of the water, by the washing of the water by the word. This is the, the the message here, the spoken word. And so, sanctification and cleansing comes through the 
uh, the spoken word. It comes through the teaching of the word of God. This teaching isn't the formal teaching from the pulpit, but it's the announcement of the gospel. And this is the role of, of Christians is to be faithful witnesses to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Then in verse 27, we have a second long-term result stated, that he might present her to himself. Christ is going to gather the church together at the rapture. When Jesus Christ returns in the air, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 17 and following, Christ is going to return in the air. The dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's the uh, word for the rapture. In, in the uh, Latin translation, it was translated by uh, uh, the, the word that uh, rapturo, which, mean, which is the Latin for, for rapture, the uh, Greek word is harpazo. People say sometimes, well, where do you find the rapture in the Bible? Well, it's in the, came from, the word came from the Latin translation there. We're caught up to be with Christ in the air. And then we're, we have that is, that is phase three glorification or final sanctification. We are freed from the presence of the sin nature, uh, eternally cleansed uh, at that time, no more sin nature. So we are then presented to Christ at the judgment seat of Christ without any residue of sin, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and without blemish, set apart to him. That's what that word holiness means. It's not this concept of morally pure, although that's a secondary idea that is present in this verse, but it is totally, eternally now set apart to God. In verse 28 then applies the principle of verses, uh, <clears throat> uh, verses 23 down through, or excuse me, from verses uh, 25 down through, or 24 down through 20, 20, uh, 27. It's that word, so. So, that we see in the very first verse, and then it will be the reason for it is stated again, or, or is expanded on in verses 29 and 30. That first word translated so is the Greek word hutos, which means in this way, in this manner. It's going to give an example. This is the same word that starts off uh, the, the Greek sentence of John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Every now and then you'll hear people say, well, God loved the world so much. It, this isn't a quantitative word. This is a word saying God loved the world in this way, in this manner. Here's the picture. So here we have the same kind of thing, so, that is, in this way, husbands, in this manner, in the manner that has just been described of Christ uh, loving the church and giving himself for her. In this manner, husbands are to love their wives. And it's uh, the, translated pretty well, ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. The Greek verb that is translated ought is the word of fellow, which is a present, just a present active indicative, but it means that there's an obligation. There is a responsibility. There is a, uh, an in, inherent obligation for you as a man, as a husband, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Now, it's funny, this word obligation. Uh, I remember having a conversation with someone many, many years ago, 
You say, wait a minute, you can't talk about Christians don't have any obligation. That's legalism. No, it's not legalism. Uh, legalism would say that, that you have to do that to get saved or you have to do that in order to be, to be sanctified. But to say that there's not an obligation with, a, with, with your salvation, uh, it doesn't make sense. And here's, here's the analogy. I'm going to give you a car. I'm going to give you a, a brand-new Lexus. It's going to be yours. It's got all the whistles and bells on it. I'm going to give it to you. Your title is on the, your name is on the title. It's yours. You accept it. It's a free gift. It's yours. Does an obligation come with the ownership of that car? Yes. You have to take care of it. You have to put air in the tires. You have to change the oil. You have to maintain it. But it's still yours. If you don't maintain it, you don't lose it. You just lose the use of it. It doesn't do you any good because if you don't change the oil, eventually the engine's going to lock up on you. If you don't put air in the tires, they're going to go flat. You're going to wear out. If you don't take care of it, if, which is analogous to uh, confessing your sins on a regular basis, to stay in fellowship, studying the Word on a regular basis so you can grow and mature. If you don't take care of your spiritual life, which is given to you freely, you don't lose it. You don't lose your salvation but you lose the benefit of it. You lose the, uh, the value, the blessings that would be yours in this life if you were growing and maturing as, as a believer. So there is an obligation, husbands, to love your wife as Christ loved the church. If you don't, then you're going to have a lot of problems in your marriage. But the focus is not on what's the wife doing. It's on what you're doing. See, husbands, what I want to get across to you is the focus in your life as a husband is that you need to be focused on, am I doing what God says I need to be doing as a male, as a husband, as a leader in the home? Trust me, there's so much involved in that. If you just keep your focus there, you'll, you'll never have to worry about what your wife's doing because you're preoccupied with what you're supposed to do. So the husband is... It's, it's incumbent upon the husband to love their own wife as their own body. You have to take care, you take care of your own body. Hopefully you're doing some exercise, you're watching what you're eating, you're eating healthy, you're taking care of it in terms of uh, uh, various medical issues. But we take care of our own body because we know if we don't take care of our own body when we need it to perform for us, then we're going to have a lot of problems. And so husbands need to focus on taking care of their own uh, wife as their own body. What we see here in this verse is a threefold use of the verb uh, agapao to love. Agapao simply emphasizes that, that unconditional love that God has for man. It's a love that is not based on emotion Although it can produce great emotion, it is not grounded on emotion. It is grounded upon a mental attitude focus on the object of love to do the absolute highest and best possible. Now, whenever I say that, I always run the risk of people listening subjectively. When I look at somebody and I say, well, I'm going to do the best thing for you, that word best can mean one of two things best objectively or best subjectively. By best subjectively, what I'm really saying is I'm going to do the best thing for you, which is what I think is best for you, which is best for me. 
It's very self-centered. And that's how most people think. If I love somebody and I'm seeking the best for them, it's what I think is best for them. But that's not what the Scripture says. The Scripture says you've got to have an objective understanding of what is best for every person, and that only comes through spiritual maturity and understanding what is truly right and what is truly the focal point of every person's life. So I want what's best for you means that I have to understand a divine viewpoint, objective understanding of what is truly best for you, which may not be what's best for me, but it is what is best for you in terms of your relationship to God and fulfilling your responsibilities. So husbands are to love their wives, not selfishly, but selflessly loving their their own wives as their own bodies. That's our natural default position. That's why in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.18, the Old Testament law said that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. That's your default position. The Bible assumes that every person automatically loves themselves. That's the default position of the sin nature. You're self-absorbed. You uh, focus on yourself. You always want to make sure your needs are taken care of first and foremost before any, anybody else. Uh, you're going to take care of yourself. That is the, the default orientation of the sin nature. We all love ourselves. Now, modern psychology tries to pull the wool over our eyes and say, well, some people just don't like themselves. Well, that's patently absurd. It's contradictory to Scripture, and it's also illogical. Well, they have a bad self-image. Well, the reason they have a bad bad self-image is because they really have a good self-image. Those psychologists are just not probing the unconscious deeply enough to use their language. See, the reason I don't like myself is because I have high standards and I have disappointed myself. So because I love myself, I'm disappointed. If If I didn't love myself, I'd be glad I'm a failure. I'd get up in the morning, look in the mirror and go, oh, you're old and fat and out of shape. That's great. I hate you. <laughs> no, we don't do that. We look in the mirror and we go, oh, you're, oh, look at you. You're old. You're fat. You're out of shape. Oh, I feel terrible. Well, the only reason you feel terrible is because you've got, you love yourself. Nobody at their core doesn't love themselves. Nobody has a bad self-image. They have a good self-image. That's the problem with sin. It's called arrogance. We think too highly of ourselves. That's a problem with every sinner. They think too highly of of themselves to begin with. We're all self-absorbed. This is the principle that Paul lays down in this sort of what's called a gnomic or universal truth. He says, he who loves his wife loves himself. Okay, that's the first part of the statement. The person who loves his wife loves himself. If you love your wife, that shows that you love yourself. You understand the union. Remember going back uh, several weeks from when I taught on the doctrine of the dance? And for a couple to become excellent dancers and to move as one, they have to think in terms of what the other person is doing. They have to be totally able to relate to the other person. The husband has to lead in a way that the that the partner can respond, the, the the woman has to has to understand the leads of the man. They have to work together as a team. It takes time to develop that. But then in verse twenty nine, Paul explains this again. Uses this uh, preposition "gar" in the Greek, which means he's now going to give the explanation of the reason for something. He says, "For no one ever hated his own flesh." See, that's what throws out a lot of modern psychology. Modern psychology says, sure they do. All these people have a self-image problem. They hate themselves. 
But the Bible says no one ever hated his own flesh. Ever. You think you do. The only reason you hate yourself is because underneath that, you love yourself. You disappoint. You're not what you want to be. Things aren't the way you want, think they ought to be. So you don't, so you think you hate yourself. You just hate the bad things that are going on and you don't like it because prior to that, you love yourself and think it ought to be better. So the principle is no one ever hated or despised himself. Everybody can, every one of you guys can understand this. You love yourself. So we can't, we can't miss the point here. Now you need to love your wife better than you take care of yourself, better than you love yourself. She's first, not you. So no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Now these are two really interesting words. The, the first word is ektrepho, translated nourish here. It has that idea. In some passages it has the idea of training, like it does a little later on in, in uh, chapter 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. That's that same word there, translated training. Uh, here it has the idea of nourishing. Guys, you need to study your wife like you study better than you study anything else. If your hobby is uh, whatever it is, whatever that hobby is that you love to spend time doing and you love looking at whatever it is you like to look at or do or build or construct or whatever, you need to know your wife better than that. And it doesn't stop when you get married. So you run into a lot of... Uh, a lot of men who they set their sights on a particular woman, I'm going to marry her, and, and once they get married, they've achieved the objective. No, you've only achieved the first step in the objective, and they, but they stop there. And the first step in that objective is, is now that you're married, now the real work begins because you need to learn your wife better than you know yourself or anything else you know in life. And that only by knowing her inside and out can you really nourish her. Can you really uh, provide an environment within the home wherein she can blossom as your assistant, as, the, as your wife, and as the mother of your children, and in her spiritual life. And that is your role as the husband is to establish that environment so that she can be properly nourished and grow and fulfill all of her potential uh, as your wife. So no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes it and cherishes it. This is the second word, uh, thalpo, to take care of it to provide everything necessary for your body to be able to function well and to fulfill your needs for it. And then we have this next comparison, just as the Lord does the church. Notice how we keep coming back. It started off so. So takes us back to our comparison. Just as Christ loved the church, so husbands ought to love their own wives and then we have the specific commands, and then it comes back to the analogy again, just as the Lord nourishes and cherishes the church. So now we have to go back and see how does the Lord nourish and cherish the church? 
and that is through his guidance, direction, communication, and the Lord does everything necessary in order to provide for the church's health. Now, we go from the marriage and understanding the relationship between husband and wife back to the relationship between Christ and the church, the individual believer. Because to understand this difficult, unseen relationship of Christ and the church, difficult to understand because we don't see it, we have this, this physical example that's the marriage. So in verse 30, Paul says, For because we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. So the point that he is making here is that the reason, husbands, that you nourish and cherish your wife is the same reason that Christ nourishes and cherishes the church because there is a, a an integral unity now that comes about as a result of the marriage. And it takes time to f- realize its fulfillment in that marriage, but it begins with the... Uh, beginning of the marriage. This is why Paul then quotes from uh, Ephesians 5.31. For the, It's a quote from Genesis chapter 2.24. The original person writing this, it's, it's a challenge to identify who's speaking in Genesis 2.24. But it's not God. It is not Adam. It is Moses. Moses has just described the creation of the woman, that her role is to be the assistant to the, to the man, and that God brings her to the woman, and and the man says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And then we get an editorial comment from Moses. For this reason, in order to promote this unity between the husband and the wife, he says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, when in Genesis chapter 2.24, there's no father or mother. At that point in time, Adam barely knows what the wife is. She just showed up, much less getting this concept of mother and father down. That's, that hadn't been educated on that yet. So let's, let's not, he's not omniscient. He's learning all of these things. Moses makes the point, though, because Moses writes some 2,000 years later, and he says, for this reason, what has just happened in light of Adam's statement that that uh, she, the wife is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Moses says, for that to be realized, they got to get out of mom and dad's house. They are no longer part of the, that home that produced them. They have to be independent of it. For this reason, a man, notice it doesn't say a woman. It's very clear in the Hebrew and in the Greek, it's the male. The male needs to leave. The man shall leave his father and mother no longer be dependent upon them, and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, there's a picture here of Christ. What did Jesus do? He left his father's home. Where did he go? He went to earth in order to die for the church so that the church could be be his bride and to be purified for him So and joined to him and become one with him. So once again, where that analogy of Christ and the church exposes other elements of the doctrine of marriage. 
Just as Christ left the Father, so the man leaves his parents in order to put his focus and attention on being the leader, the provider, uh, and the one who uh, focuses upon the wife. This is why Paul then says in verse 32, this is a great mystery. What's the great mystery? That a, fa- that a man should leave his father and mother? That's not a mystery in the biblical sense. In the biblical sense, a mystery is previously unrevealed truth. What's the unrevealed truth here? The unrevealed truth here is the relation between Christ and the church because prior to the New Testament, prior to the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, there was no church. So this is giving new information about that relationship between Christ and the church and that it is tightly connected to the relationship between the husband and the wife. They are to be joined together as members of one another. Now, Paul expands on this whole concept on the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, several different passages. I just want to highlight a few of them here. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14, the centerpiece is verse 13, talking about spirit baptism. We were baptized by means of one spirit into one body. Now, we're all individual. We don't lose our individual identity but we are united in a in a way we don't fully comprehend where we are become members of one another and members of Christ in the body of Christ. So Paul says in verse 12, for as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, that is the body of Christ, being many are one body. So not only are do you have the husband and wife coming together as a new entity where the husband, neither the husband or the wife loses their identity and their distinct roles, but they are now a, a distinct unity. It's, it's, go back to that analogy with, with dancing. When you have two individuals just dancing, doing their own thing, there's no coordination, there's nothing there that is uh, specifically artful or beautiful. But when they come together, and they learn the principles of dancing together, where the husband is the is the leader, the wife the the follower, and they their their roles in the dance blend and meld together as one. And we've all seen this, and when we see beautiful dance uh, couples dancing, is they act as if they are just one entity, one thought between them. One's the leader, one's the follower, but it doesn't wipe out that that individual. There's no sense of one person being a dictator and a tyrant over the other or any of those sorts of distortions that we hear, but they produce something that is that is absolutely beautiful and artistic, and it's, it's like the whole idea of wisdom in the Old Testament. is It's a skill that is developed over time through the application of doctrine. So we're in the same way that you had this unity of the unity together of the husband and wife. There is a unity that comes together the different parts of believers as we recognize our unity in the body of Christ. We're all members of that one body, and we're uh, being many are one body. So also is Christ. And then verse 14 says, "For in fact the body is not one member but many." You don't lose individual identity but we come together as a team to, to uh, complement and to build one another. Then in verse 24, 1 Corinthians 12, 
Uh, Paul goes on to say, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to, honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. So the, the, the mandates upon the man and the woman, the husband and the wife in the marriage are no different from the mandates of different believers to other believers in terms of our care uh, for one another. Verse 26 says, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. We may not realize that, but there's this integral unity in the body of Christ that if there is a problem with one member of the body of Christ, it affects everybody else in some way. And then verse 27 concludes that discussion. Uh, Paul says, you are the body of Christ and members individually. So we're members of it. In Romans 13 talks about we're members of one another. That's a hard concept for some of us to get our thinking around. Back to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5 concludes by saying, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning, uh, oh, uh, excuse me, verse 31. They're joined to his wife. So that's that idea of joining just, and the emphasis is on that, that, joining of the individual believer to the body of Christ. That's, that's the pattern there. And then Paul concludes in verse 33, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular, each one of you who? Each one of you husbands. Each one of you particularly, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband honors him. That's part of uh, submission is honoring someone. Somebody sent me a uh, text message yesterday. This is where it really gets tough. I understand this. It says, okay, help me understand. This was clearly reference to the election. How do we respect the office? See, the same issue applies here for a wife. How do you respect the office of the husband if he's not fulfilling his responsibility? How do you respect the office if the person in the office is someone you can have no respect for? That's where it comes down to objectivity. Uh, my response was not illuminating, so I won't go into that. But um, we all wrestle with that. How do we respect the office of a person who, in legitimately in authority when that person is a failure in that office, whether it's a husband, whether it's a parent, whether it's an employer, whether it's a teacher? We have to respect and honor the office. And we do that how? By recognizing that they have a legitimate role of authority and where that authority is exercised legitimately, in other words, they're not telling us to do something that contradicts God's will, then we are uh, obedient to that. And that applies to government, that applies to military, that applies to the classroom, that applies to anything. But that authority and it's le that legitimate authority never has the right to tell us to do something that contradicts God's will. But we have to understand the importance of that role as a, of, of, of authority and that love and respect go hand in hand. So this is a conclusion of verse 33 of Paul's comment in Ephesians 5 related to husbands. And the next time we'll come into the next part, which begins to deal with the family. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to reflect upon uh, for all of us, how we can honor and glorify you as a wife, as a husband, and in our marriages and in our families. Father, we recognize that we can't do this on our own. We can only do this through the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and it is he that produces in us uh, the kind of love that is unique and distinct to the Christian life. 
Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins so you could have eternal life. All you have to do is trust in him. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of being a part of the right church. It's not a matter of being baptized. It's just a matter of faith alone in Christ alone. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we've taught, what we've learned this morning, and help us to implement this in our life, constantly thinking in terms of these biblical mandates for us as men, as women, as families, that we may honor and glorify you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.